RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. John Robinson is a research scientist. He's investigated a variety of topics, including the social statistics of Māori. He says the treaty is clear that sovereignty goes to Great Britain and that all New Zealanders are British subjects, all equal, not divided in any way into different classes of citizen. I'm reading from the blog post on bassettbrashandhide.com from Dr. John Robinson. And his uh, most recent piece I'm looking at here, February 19th, is headlined in this way, Destroying New Zealand, the Sovereignty of Ngāpui Hapu. When talking of the outrageous Waitangi Tribunal ruling that Ngāpui did not recognise British sovereignty, nor the sovereignty of today's New Zealand, I, being uh, Dr Robinson, pointed out that Ngāpui were in fact at the forefront of asking for British intervention. And uh, he goes on to say that it was suggested that he pulled together a list of actual Ngāpui actions leading to 1840, and this uh, blog post is the result. So that has us curious, and uh, Dr. John Robinson joins us on Reality Check Radio now. Welcome, Dr. Robinson. Thanks for coming in. Oh, hi there. Okay, so Ngāpui were in fact at the forefront of asking for British intervention when what we hear is that they, what, never signed? Oh, well, this is playing trickery. Um, the whole treaty business has been a bit of a joke. They they ripped apart the original treaty. Um, what they're playing with is that the um, Napui is an iwi, a tribe across North Auckland there, and the leaders were keen on signing the treaty, set up the treaty, signed it, and I'll explain later. In, in our interview, what happened at the time of the signing. Right. But they hadn't talked to every Maori in their area. They hadn't talked to every sub-tribe, every hapu. So a couple of hapus have said, oh, we didn't sign it, so we've still got sovereignty. And that makes a complete mess of the whole sovereignty of New Zealand. The country falls apart, if you're going to believe that sort of thing. So how come the Waitangi Tribunal have ruled that Ngāpui did not recognise British sovereignty if it was just some sub-tribes sort of not on board with the programme and not the whole entity? How did they come to that ruling? Because they wanted to. The Waitangi Tribunal was set up in 1975. Now, that's about 48 years ago, and they've been working since then to divide New Zealand into Maori and non-Maori and make up, invent, find any way of finding some wrong that was done by the government in order to justify some really quite absurd settlements to many tribes. And um, they have spun off now, and they've rewritten the history of New Zealand, destroyed the treaty, and led to the point that we're now a divided country. Well, I think it's fair to say that we are a divided country. So you're saying this has been the Waitangi Tribunal's sort of mission, if you will, for how, how long did you say, the last 48 years? That's correct. It's a permanent commission. Now, in South Africa, they had real troubles. They had real troubles uh, with apartheid. So they set up a... Um, Peace and Conciliation Commission for five years, and they worked for five years, and they brought peace 
and conciliation and went away. They'd done their job. They weren't going to sit there forever talking, talking, uh, whereas the Waitangi Tribunal is permanent and has set its, dug its heels in to be permanent. What I mean, we'll go through, you know, what what's what happened and 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 what is happening in a moment. But what do you think the end goal is then? For the, the end for the... goal is set down very clearly. I've described it in my book, Hey Purple, which is describing the Hey Purple report, which describes the division of the country until we have two completely separate governments which joined together in the meeting group, a third government structure, where the Maori have effective control. And that is their vision 2040. And I wrote the book just two years ago, and it, it's, a, it's a way off age two years ago, because a great amount of that program has been put into operation. Um, <clears throat> Most people don't understand that there is already an alternative government has been set up. Um, alternative courts are planned, and an alter there's been a uh, meeting up at Auckland University with international experts to plan a new constitution for New Zealand, an indigenous constitution, and that's based on the United Nations declaration of the rights of indigenous people this is the separate people separate from the rest of us um which takes us a long way down that line towards the sort of apartheid we're getting now so who's driving that then because that takes cooperation of many people not just maori right i mean oh the uh... government is on board with that now remember that the labor party hasn't always been on board with this. Um, the Helen Clark government refused to sign that UNDRIP United Nations Declaration, but um, the John Key government signed it. Before we think of politics, politics is not in this. It's not left-wing, right-wing. It's just the Maori Party gets power and forces whoever they form a coalition with to go their way, except now the Labour Party has seized on the whole idea, as has the Green Party. Um, now, there's a quite a there's a big organisation been built up. I, you know, 48 years, lots of treaty settlements, millions, billions, billions of dollars, um, which have been invested, and a great deal of the power in New Zealand is with the um, Iwi Leaders Forum. That is a very important group now. But they're joined also by Supreme Court judges who've written Tekanga into law. Now, if you don't know what Tekanga is, I've written a book on Tekanga, and I don't know what they mean by Tekanga. It's a sort of a muddle. It's whatever they want it to be, some mixture of the ancient culture, which was quite horrific with, with the... Um, uh, warfare between the tribes and um, eating people and all that sort of thing, and and some there's even a little bit of Sunday school Christianity into what they call Tikanga. It's a really funny business. Yeah, so I'm still trying to struggle here with how supposedly well educated 
really smart individuals who are, in, in terms of justice anyway, completely steeped in the law, um, are so, what's the word, accepting or, or, or have such a favourable outlook on this? How, how do we explain that? Has there been some sort of brainwashing that's gone on? Um, that's part of the answer. Part of the answer is careers. Now, I did some work for um, the Crown Forestry Rental Trust, which was a report for the Waitangi Tribunal, and they were hoping to show the harm done by Maori by colonisation. And as a mathematician, I was just looking at a few mathematical facts. You know, at the end of the 19th century, Maori was selling off land left, right and centre, particularly in the northern South Island where I was writing about. So I had to see the uh, link between that sale of land and Maori health, Maori well-being. Well, the Maori population was showing great signs of increase about that time. So, of course, I had to rewrite my report. You see, I said the word, of course, that's the way it works. You have to give in a report that suits that picture which is being driven, and that's been driven by many years. And many people have earned their careers in the system, and you're beholden to it. So that's one reason. Yeah. Um, there is a simple greed of um, the leading Maori, often referred to the Maori elite, the leaders of iwi, who are really gaining a great deal. The common common garden Maori, the ordinary chap, is getting nothing at all out of it. Um, and then there is the Maori Party and the um, Maori MPs in the Labour Party who form a Maori caucus, and they're very powerful, each of these groups, both within that Labour Party and impacting on other uh, parties that might go into coalition with the Maori Party, as National did for a few years. I'm curious about all these different versions of the Treaty of Waitangi. You mention the um, these are diverse, diversions between the 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 one that was signed and the one that was translated by one of the assistants, and that um, and that is what recently been well in in recent times relatively discovered, and that seems to be the more accurate one. I'm confused. Please help me out here. Explain that. Um, okay, I'll take a bounce back here and introduce myself as a scientist and tell you the couple of um, principles that lead me in my work. And I'd say they lead most people that you've referred to. Why aren't most people seeing this? First of all, if you want to look at a situation, you gather the facts, the whole lot of them. That means reading the treaty and so on. The second thing you do is take time for reflection, stop and think it through. And then you can get to some conclusion. But the third point is very important. You must be prepared to move away from accepted theory. That's the way I solved the problem of my master's degree in physics at Auckland University. And it went on to other problems. You know, you just say, hey, I believe this, but it's not working. So you get all the facts, you study them, you stop and think about it, and you think, oh, my goodness, it's wrong. So you've got to be prepared to do all of that. Now, 
the, if you want to understand the Treaty of Waitangi, first of all, have to get it in context, 1840. Okay. Um, the Maori had come to New Zealand some hundreds of years before, but they'd been wandering across the Pacific, moving across the Pacific for thousands of years. So for something like five or seven thousand years, they'd been separated from the great culture of Eurasia, the great culture spreading from, since some of us come from England, from there across to, to uh, Egypt and across, right across to, to China and down to India and so on. So all the advances, all the changes, the development, the wheel, the metal age, all those things, of course they'd missed out on. No, no criticism of them. That's exactly what happened. So they were a tribal culture. And when the British came, some managed to get muskets and uh, the warfare, which was all the time happening between the tribes, that's tribal behaviour, um, just spread all over. And so by towards 1820, 1830, the country was complete chaos. Um, and a lot of Maori was starting to realise that. And the missionaries had been there for some years by then, but they hadn't been listened to. But around about 1835, there was a big movement to join churches. There was a cultural revolution, which is not well understood here. It's not spoken of. The well, that's interesting. So, 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 the, so they were waking up to their situation. Is that what you're, you're saying? Absolutely. And in the 1835, oh, one thing that has happened during all that warfare is that whole areas of the country were um, just unpopulated. Northern Taranaki, but particularly the Tamaki Peninsula, and the great efforts at peacemaking in the 1835 onward, where Maori were meeting, trying very hard to make peace amongst themselves and help very much by missionaries. So the uh, these Napui chiefs had uh, written a letter with, with missionary help to the British government, 1831, the British government sent out a representative, Busby. He wrote a letter in 1835. Um, but the point that Busby was making was that Britain could not come and help New Zealand. There couldn't be a treaty because Britain would want to make a treaty with the government, the government of New Zealand. There was no such thing. Keep that in mind when you think of the Treaty of Waitangi. The Treaty of Waitangi, strangely enough, is not a treaty. It, could, it couldn't be in that sense. Because so there's we, no actual power authority to make a treaty with. That's right. So they did the best thing they could. This is Maori were talking to British. You know, they were talking to one another. The best thing they could do was to get an agreement with as many tribes as possible. Now, the British did not want to come and make an agreement with one tribe, back them up, and then make a war on all the other tribes. Yeah, That was yeah. not their game. They, they wanted peace, really. So that's the start of it. So Busby, so Hobson was sent up with all sorts of instructions, but not with a written treaty, really. He had to write it when he got here. And that treaty was written over several days in consultation with a number of people, settlers and British. 
it was then translated. And of course, the translation caused problems because a lot of these concepts like sovereignty didn't exist in Maori culture. So you had to do the very best you could. Yeah. Get that in mind. They did the best they could. And it was presented, presented on a Wednesday. At the beginning of the presentation, the Maori made challenges, very severe challenges. Oh, as a chief, I don't want to lose my power to you. Actually, what that shows is they knew exactly what the treaty meant, that they would lose their chiefly power. The chief would not be an absolute power anymore. So that, so you'd say that that shoots down the um, Tino Rangatiratanga. Is that the, uh, the term already at that point? Yeah, they're yeah. accepting it's that it's they're ceding that they're ceding yeah. their authority. There were very many. If, if you read through the subsequent actions and discussions, for example, um, Honi Heke had his fighting against the crown, and immediately tribes from across all of New Zealand sent letters to the government saying, "We'll help you. We'll send troops. Stop this." They wanted the peace that the treaty. Had bought. And they didn't, the want, way, didn't want anyone spoiling it. They didn't <laughs> want anybody it. spoiling. I don't want to say the treaty brought peace. The Maori brought peace. They wanted peace, but the treaty was part of that movement. So, so I'm just curious. They wanted peace because what they had seen, what a, a different way, a better way. Yeah. Well, well, a lot of them had been travelling on ships. There had been ships visiting as well as the missionaries. Some had been to England, quite a few had been to Australia, some were traders, you know. They weren't just sitting by there. Um, so there was a fair appreciation that it was a different way of living. And Hongi Hika had been to England and he described to the chiefs around him what things were like and he had discussions with missionaries. Some of these show that uh, these chiefs were pretty bright people. I've said that the uh, culture was pretty awful, and, and there's no doubt about that. But the people themselves, they were bright folks. They, well, there are smart people everywhere, let's face yep, it. Yeah, Human beings people, are smart. There were people like people like people like that. Um, now, what happened? I've just said there's this first day of discussion on the Wednesday. What happened next is the key, the key to the whole treaty, and it's well, always okay. ignored. Because <clears throat> Hobson said, okay, we'll meet on Friday. And Hobson goes back to his ship. Well, on the Thursday, the following day, the missionaries come along and they find the Maori are there already. Thursday, it was not meant to be a meeting day, but the, the uh, Maori had turned up and they said, we want to sign the treaty. Oh, like right now. <laughs> Just like that. Now, there are many cases where there have been debates in Maori back in those days, and a meeting would go on for days and days and days and get nowhere. This was a meeting that had taken five hours, you know, one day. And the Maori had turned up the following day. They didn't say, oh, we've got some questions to ask, we want to argue this, that, and the other. They just said, good, we want to sign the damn thing. And so they stood around and chatted for a while, and finally somebody sent a boat across the ship. 
and Hobson came ashore, leaving his hat behind in a great rush about midday. And blow me, they just signed the treaty. Now, I'm going to repeat that. This was the most important, the key to the whole approach to the treaty by the Maori. They turned up at Waitangi wanting to sign that treaty, and they knew that it would bring a new power. What does it mean when you, they say, be a father to us? Lots of them said that to Hobson, be a father to us. Um, now, if I can, I've got my notes here, you know, and I'm going to throw them uh, around a little bit here because sure. the, that, that's, that's, we've got two treaties now, the one written in English yep. and the one translated into Maori. The one written in English then went missing. There was something a bit chaotic around there. I think so it went missing. Went missing. Yes. Where is it? Says James Freeman is is um, is uh, Hobson's secretary, who seems hopeless. So what Freeman did was to gather the notes from the previous day's discussion and cobble together a version of the treaty. And he then sent it off to London as the treaty. And that's the treaty which is presented to us by the government now. And they know the whole story that I've just told you. They know who wrote that one because the original actually turned up in 1989 in a drawer. It's called now the Littlewood Treaty because it was in the family of a lawyer, Littlewood. Mm. And that is a copy which agrees totally with the Maori Treaty. So you've got the Maori Treaty and the English Treaty, the Littlewood and the Maori. And the Maori, by the way, is the Maori as translated around 1840 and so on, and right up to the time of Aparana Nata in 1922. So you've got those in good agreement. You've got one which is completely different, which is the Freeman version. Um, and now we actually have a completely different <laughs> versions of the treaty presented by the government because there's been so many discussions of this word means that and this word means that and this word doesn't mean what it actually was thought to mean and no, they didn't sign away sovereignty. So we now have the idea that the partnership Partnership and co-governance means that we're two people. You don't have partners if you're just one group. Two different groups have partnership. But now we get the principles of the treaty. Um, now, there's no principles in the treaty, so you have to deride them. From the yeah, they're, de they're derived principles, right. Yeah, well, I'm cheeky. I've derived principles from the text myself. How dare I? But of course I have. By the way, at the time when treaty principles were being derived from the text, there were at least 25, I think there were over 40, different um, sets of principles laid down by different people amongst the government. I mean, everybody has a different set of principles, they imagine. But here's my argument. The treaty says, first of all, Britain has sovereignty. Second, we're all British citizens. And then Hobson says we're all one people. 
So there you are. There's only one principle set down in the treaty, equality. And mm. his, um, a, a similar comment written in 1972 by Ruth Ross after a thorough study of the treaty, a really good work. Um, I actually disagree with some of what she says, but it's very good work. She concluded the treaty was ambiguous and contradictory in content, chaotic in its execution. I think she went too far on that, but here's her conclusion. <clears throat> to persist in postulating that this was a sacred compact is sheer hypocrisy. If Waitangi 1840 held any real promise for the future, it was per perhaps in Hobson's few words of halting Maori to each man as he signed, hey iwi tahi tatu, we are one people. You got my halting Maori in that, that one. But it is the key, we are one people, and that's been shattered now. We're not one people. And that is at the core of the attacks that have been made on Tross Publishing, where I publish my books, there have been three attacks on TVNZ and one on stuff on Tross. They want to ban the books. They want nobody to sell those books. They want them to go. And quite frankly, uh, I think if you follow their reasoning, what are we doing talking to one another now? This is really not allowed. It shouldn't be allowed because um, it's it's just not acceptable for them. And to go on with that, I think you're quite aware, um, there has been a stop co-governance movement yes, with has. Julian Batchelor, and he's had uh, venues refused to him because there might be some problems. Some well, problems. there have been some problems. There have been some real well, problems. I'm going back to the beginning. <laughs> what, <clears throat> what is argued by many councils is there's some people who turn up as a mob and bother your meeting, and we don't want any of that hassle, so we'd rather you didn't have your meeting. So the people who are threatening you succeed right away. But Julian has gone ahead. He's got venues he's had meetings we had one here in um Pram, and i was at that one and there was a chap just along from me who at one stage stood up and sounded howling the demonstrators just want to disrupt there's no argument there's no discussion there's disruption and we all know at palmerston north recently julian had to be escorted in by a phalanx of policemen and his car was scratched and painted and written all over. So we're getting, and he's getting, he, he's written recently that he has been getting death threats, which I think should be taken seriously. Well, this is not going too well, is it? Uh, in fact, you can feel the tension <laughs> rising up. And there's, it seems on all sides, um, well, when I say all sides, it, it, uh, the um, at the government level, at uh, the um, Maori Party level, at uh, Iwi level, and even just out there in general society, amongst uh, many, there's a perception that uh, there is a sort of a racist movement within this country. It seems to me that that all comes about by a lack of clarity on the information from 1840 
and a badly executed process at the time. Would that be right? Oh, no, that's only a small part of it. It's all, it's the reinvention of our history that's happening now. Um, we can all live with the fact that they did the best they could, and there you are, it was fine. It was fine up to 1975, pretty much. Um, but it's been, this racism has been growing since then. Now, I'm called a racist, but by people who will not tell you what they mean by racism. So the only thing to deal, way to deal with that is to say, what is racism? Okay, here's my definition. Okay. First of all, you believe in race, right? A Maori is a member of the Maori race. That's written into New Zealand law. There is a race. Secondly, you divide people by race. You count them. You give them separate, all sorts of separate things. And then you give them more and more special rights based on that right. And that's racism. And it's apartheid that has developed here. Can I um, then add to that? <clears throat> because the one document that is claimed to support their racism, and understand clearly I'm saying the government is racist. Okay, and I've defined yeah. what I mean by that. I'm not just throwing a word around. Uh, one document that is um, that they claim is supporting them is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Now, so interestingly enough, there is a statement in that document that refutes the whole of the argument made in the document that Indigenous people should get special rights. Here it is. All doctrines, policies and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin or racial, religious, ethnic or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable and socially unjust. Now, I just suggest that everybody listening get that report, if you can get it online, and read it and see if I'm correct, see if it's written in there, because um, it's very important to have things referenced and get our facts right. That um, other version, what do you call it, the Littlewood version of the treaty, um, I'm, I'm just interested in the in the difference between, you know, what was out there until until this version was found. What are the differences? There are too many for me to remember. Well, what are the main ones? Uh, then? I mean, how does it how does it you know it it, it set apart from from the legacy stuff? Well, first of all, it's badly written. So the first time I <clears throat> was told I really should understand the treaty, I got the copy and read it, and I thought this can't be true. This is this is rubbish. Hmm. But the key, uh, I think, to me, the key item in, in it is fisheries. Okay. In, in, in the treaty, the Maori hold on to their belongings, but um, um, Freeman. Freeman had added fisheries, and so they've got all the fisheries now out of that one. Um, Aparana Nata, writing in 1922, um, was very clear about that difference. Well, what did he say then? Oh, he said, 
the uh, English version gives us the fisheries as well, but we're not that greedy. We're not going to try and grab everything like that. Right. And, and, that, and that reference to the fisheries was the Freeman version kind of just sort of thrown in there for whatever reason. That wasn't actually part of the negotiation. Um, well, when they were writing the treaty, and I'm back to the treaty writing, um, all sorts of ideas were thrown up and written down. Right. And they sorted out and they crossed some out and the, the fisheries disappeared completely. It was it was belonging. So um, that part of the treaty had an importance, I think, around about 1847 or so, when there was Earl Grey, I think, became the decision maker in London. And he said, oh, the Crown owns all the terra nullis, all the empty land. And that caused a hell of a stink. And I think that that part of the treaty really said, look, all of New Zealand, unless it's sold, belongs to Maori. That, that, that's the way it's been interpreted, and it's not the way it was explicitly said. Yeah. I mean, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't negotiate that though. It doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't Sorry. negotiate something like that because then, then by default, um, everything belongs to one side, right? Oh, well, the point is at the beginning, uh, all land except that had already been sold belonged to the Bowery. Um, but once they sign up to sovereignty and British citizenship, then the seas and the rivers and so on are common ground yeah. into the British system. And to me, look, this is precious, our common ground. I, as a student, went up Narahoe, walked up Narahoe, walked up Ruapai, sat up there and thought, by golly, it's all ours. It belongs to me. All this is mine. I took a weekend off once, hitchhiked down to National Park, walked up to Ketatahi Hot Springs, as I was allowed to, and I sat in the hot water with ice and snow around me on the side of a mountain. It's something like that you really remember all your life. It's something marvellous. and A shared because, thing, right? A shared... Yeah, because it was our land, and yeah. there's a fence around it now. There's a fence around it. You can't go there. That's what's been taken from us. I can yeah. get quite emotional on these things because, look, the beaches, the the seas, they're all they belong to everybody. Well, I well I didn't choose where I could be born. No one asked me. So, no, well, that's true of everybody. That's a starting point. Um, but that that automatically cuts me in, man. But another important point is we're alive. You see, what happens to New Zealand now should depend not on what was written hundreds of years ago. It should depend on what we want now. Well, I want equality. I want freedom, freedom of speech. I want a fair democracy, you know, that type of thing. And I grew up taking all that for granted. We we didn't do a lo- whole lot of reading up on how these had been achieved. We just believed that we had them. Where do you see all this going? Um, 
we have seen where it's going already. Mm. A mob has attacked Julian. That's it's got there. Um, now, what happen, has to happen now is for them, is for other people who believe in freedom, democracy, and equality, equality to insist on that. You know, of all the principles in the treaty, the one that the government does not pronounce is equality. You don't find it. Um, so one day when the Prime Minister stands up and says we're all one people, as Jacinda Ardern hypocritically did, it will be true. Now, that would be rather nice. But once all that happens, then we can try and put things back again. And there's a huge job to be done, a huge job. Um, my expectation is that if that happened, the Maori would really rebel. By Maori, I'll not mean every Maori, but some who believe in that sort of thing. They're the inheritors of the rebellions of the um, 19th century, of course. Mm -hmm. Well, that that can lead to a pretty grim situation. Yep, we're facing it. We're facing you think so? It. Yes. Um, I mean, if, I think a couple of years ago you could write, oh, there's worries, you know, there's worries. Yeah, I think the last two years have taken a long way down the track. You see, if you listen to what the Maori Party is saying and what various activists are saying, they're saying that we want full control of the rivers, of the seas. We want our land back. Now, the Labour Party is saying we'll give back all stolen land and nobody knows what they're talking about, unless you do. What is stolen land? Um, land was confiscated. That wasn't stolen. That was a, a legal action by a government acting against people who were rebelling. And when they, the government realised, found that it had confiscated too much land, the government gave two-thirds of the land back again, except in the Waikato. And that's a telling fact, because in the Waikato, um, Gray had gone to Tafiao, the, the second Maori king, and he said, look, I'll give you all of these back, all the land that, that we confiscated but hasn't been sold. And this is after they'd had a rebellion and there'd been a war, you know. Um, a very generous act, and all the Maori surrounding at the time cheered, and uh, Rory Maniapoto, who was a key rebel, set up a great celebration in Waitara, and everybody gathered and cheered that the whole war was over and there was peace. And the year later, um, the government went back to Tafia and said, good, let's sign this agreement, and Tafia said, no way, I'm the king. He would not pledge loyalty to the crown. That is, he wouldn't say that he was part of the government. He was insisting that he was separate king. Um, was he on an ego trip? <laughs> well, he was a funny bloke. He he took up various religions and things. I have no respect for him. Where's his father? Now, to Ferro not enough is known about him. He was a, a truly great warrior you know some of the stories of his feats were, were amazing but he was also 
a killer, you know, you, you cannibalism, you, you capture people and kill a lot and so on and eat them and so on. But that was in the um, 1820s. By 1835, he was living on the Manukau and part of the peacemaking movement there. And he was quite annoyed by the treaty because he wasn't invited to the initial signing. And he's absolutely right. They just rushed it through. Um, so when the treaty came his way, he wouldn't sign it. But within a couple of years, when Honey Hickey was starting his rebellion and he cut down the flagpole, you know, that sounds all right, a dramatic thing. He also killed three men and a young girl at the same time as cutting down the flagpole. He was a murderer. Um, but... Um, Anyway, T. Farrow became very trusted friend of George Gray, so that when there was problems with T. Rapra, he was put into the good care of T. Farrow and Aparana Nata from Northland, one of the Northland leaders who wanted and signed the treaty. So, um, <coughs> but then in 1857, these, these things really need to be understood. In 1857, the governor, Gore Brown, came to Waikato and he said the Waikato people, oh, there's some unhappiness with the way things are going. What do you want? And they gave him a list and he said, I'll give her the lot. You know, you want a, a courthouse and you want a, somebody to judge any of the disputes and so on. You got that, and we'll bring somebody in to help you with this and that. And everybody cheered. And Tiferifera said, "I'm an old man. I leave my pe people to your care." That's what he said. Right. But later that year, the King movement wanted him to be the king, and all the other Maori of the region said, "No way. He's our chief. He's our top chief, senior chief, but king. No way." And that yeah. happened again the following year. The king was turned down in 1858. The majority, the try and get this a bit correct, the whole of the Waikato people never accepted the king movement. Okay? There was okay. a group of them set up the king movement. He was then made the king by which stage he was getting older and sicker and he was abused he was absolutely abused this is quite well described like like elder abuse absolutely about the worst case you'll find he was shoved into a back room where he was largely ignored and he died of course in early 1860 so he didn't have long to live as he knew but um this was one of the great men of new zealand if by the way julian has been called anti-maori and so have cross-publishing, and therefore me, of course, because I publish with them, anti-Maori. Well, for goodness sake, some of the greatest New Zealanders we've had um, are, of course, Maori. And I've named Te Whara Tamati Wakanini. Um, these are great, great people, and Aparananata, of course. Yeah, Winston of, of, often refers to him, I've noticed. As a, a real, not not just a Maori sort of visionary in our country, but just a visionary, you know, who had a very, very um, clear clear eye view of where where we were and where we should be going. So, 
Um, well, well it sounds sorry. It sounds like we're in a bit of trouble. Yeah, the problem is the best way to get out of it is re is uh, refused us. We must have free speech. We must have meetings. We must discuss these things. Well, I've had meetings turned down because I'm too controversial. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> but but you see, they don't say you're controversial because of this and this and this. You're and racist, this. right? They just say you're controversial, full stop. You're racist, full stop. Yeah. Well, I'm making it clear they're racist and I'm clear. I want equality. I, I think that's fighting. Well, I think that's all anyone but, can but ask the, for. So we want this discussion. We want all to join together to see our differences. But that has refused us. Books are banned, meetings are shut down, and the those who um, want to push the current narrative uh, um, are just they're bullies. That's all. I once because that work I referred to for the Crown Forestry Rental Trust, I was asked to to appear for a few minutes at the Waitangi Tribunal meeting. Well, you go in there and here you're forced into what I feel is a bit racist. The whole meeting was packed with Maori. It was a lot of Maori travel from hearing to hearing of a lot of folks amongst the Maori community laugh at those people, but they do. And you get the feeling of un an unhappy vibe. You know, you're not welcome, really. And I presented my bit of facts, which was pretty mangled, to be quite frank. I couldn't, never felt I could speak honestly and openly. Right, you were guarded. Well, I'd been bullied so much that it worked. <laughs> right, you know, okay. I'm, I have to admit that I'm a bit an ordinary person. You know, wouldn't it be good to stand up and say, I, I'm so brave, I always say what I believe. Yeah, yeah, I oh, hear Oh, come on, mate. Um so I do the best I can. And what I'm really saying is there's absolutely no connection between selling land and and uh, and any problems with health. Quite the opposite. Yeah, well, that's the thing that the, all these things have been conflated, haven't yeah, they? But, but what happened to me was that I was attacked by lawyer after lawyer after lawyer. I mean, and these lawyers don't go in for reasoned discussion. I once had an experience of some legal students tackling a scientist. It was at my house, and they were all guests, you know, but they tackled him and they bullied him. And the uh, legal people had been trained to attack people, and the scientists was just simply backing away. Yeah, bullies. Because a scientist wouldn't do that. A scientist is far more willing to... Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know. Yeah, uh, scientists aren't usually attack dogs like no, lawyers. No, yeah. no, no, uh, no. I get, get what you're saying there. So I, I think I'm similar in my approach, you know, just, just looking for the facts and working out what's going, more similar to engineers or business people. Yeah. All yeah. sorts of people throughout our whole community uh, uh, have got an air of reasonableness about them and yeah. a willingness to sit down and say, okay, I think you're talking rubbish, mate, now, and, you know, and talk about it. And here's why, yeah. Um, 
Okay. Um, tell us about your books quickly. Just give us some titles so people can follow those up if they're interested, because you mentioned them before. What are they? Well, I've written quite a few books. Well, uh, mention the them... ones that you think need mentioning then. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll refer to just three just to be a bit sure. clear. And I've mentioned them anyway. Hey, Purple Blueprint for Breaking Up New Zealand. Yep. This gives you an idea of the background to that report and what's in that report. And as I said, it's it's settling down, setting down the idea of completely separate governments. Which I can't uh, see now, how it could work anyway, actually. Um, well, what's even worse is that they're, is, uh, they're insisting that their side of things will be tribal. That's... Yeah, well, that... <laughs> Makes it even more difficult and complicated. It, it's, it's almost impossible. Tribes it, argue it, amongst themselves. One, um, yeah, one person I know um, working in the background of the tribunal, no, not a tribunal member, but working there, said, "Maori hate non-Maori." And I think the word hate is, is altogether too true. And but above all, they hate one another. <laughs> and, okay, and well hate hate's a scary word. But anyway, I then wrote a book after that because I realized things were really worse than what I described. Yep. And it's called Regaining a Nation, Equality and Democracy. And I think that title is more true this year than last year when I wrote it. Regaining a nation, we've lost the nation. That's my own view. But you think it's, it's already gone. gone? Yes, yes, definitely. And yep. it's got uh, the information about the alternative governments that have been. They're pathetic, but they're there and they're allowed to exist. And they're given um, all sorts of um, qualifications and stuff building up. And there has been that conference in Auckland about writing a constitution for New Zealand. When I um, took an interest in the constitution debates in Te Papa that were carried by Radio New Zealand some years ago. Yes, I remember them. Yep. I went along. Well, in the end, I challenged Gloria Orange. I said, look, this is one point of view. What about the rest of us? And she, she worked to set up one more one more meeting, and I was a speaker there. And I thought I was going to be the speaker, but no, I was one of five, and the others were pretty much the standard. And But that was an eye-opener to me because I went along quite nervy, quite scared. Oh, it's just me against them. So I did all this preparation, what I'd say about the treaty and so on. And I spoke as strongly as I could. And then I found nothing. They didn't argue against me. Because what these people who were experts, fellow experts on the stage, didn't know them, didn't know a thing. They really, oh, so they couldn't argue with you because they didn't know anything. Well, that was that, that was an astonishing, astonishing yeah, thing. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. But the other book I would like to point to. By the way, I think that everybody should be aware of Tross Publishing. Tross Publishing have been, there have been calls out to ban Tross Publishing, to shut down this small business. 
It's an attack on a small business. Yeah. Uh, shut them down, ban the books. Cancel, yeah. And um, so I'd encourage everybody with the interest of my books or any other books, go on to Tross Publishing and look at the full list of books. And okay, yeah. If you buy it there, you'll get free postage. But the other book is The Kingite Rebellion. Um, that's a, not too long ago. Sorry, I'm just... 2016. I don't remember when I wrote these books. 2016. <laughs> okay. But I tried to do a thorough job here to follow through the Kingite Rebellion. So you'll find in that book that the fighting takes about three pages of the book because it's all about the various meetings, the discussions, the ideas, and what happened afterwards. I've mentioned that rather key one when, when uh, Gray said, we'll give you so much of your confiscated land back. And Tapiao a year later said, I'm a king. I'm not, you know, I'm not. The, you know, it was only when Queen Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth came to New Zealand, that the first indication that the Maori king movement accepted the sovereignty right. of the government of New Zealand. That was 1953, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been really interesting hearing what you have to say, Dr. John Robinson. Thank you for coming on. It sounds like you've um, had to endure the slings and arrows along the way. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, we can have some sort of hope and positivity about surrounding about how we sort of manage this country and sort ourselves out going forward. I mean, you sound of a certain age. But do you have hope and optimism? Do you think we'll get it right at some point, despite it feeling like, you know, it's it's a little on the edge at the moment? I'm perhaps the most pessimistic of all the people I okay. know. Right. Um, look, we have a national government that believes in co-governance and an act party, which has been a bit stroppy, but still wants to keep the Waitangi Tribunal. Well, they opened the door to this with the signing of that um, that uh, United Nations thing with well, John National, Key, didn't they? Yeah, but National also rewrote Foreshore and Seabed. You see, the right, okay. Clark government did two good things in the sense of standing up for everybody. Yeah. It wrote a quite reasonable Foreshore and Seabed legislation, and uh, that resulted in the United Nations rapporteur coming to New Zealand, talking to the Maori and saying, New Zealand, you've got to change your policies. And, and is, Key did that out of just political expediency to, to grab power, right? Who did his, it? His deal with the Maori Party back then. Well, I find it puzzling because, yes, that's the answer. But, however, how could he have done it? You have a party which actually had a person called Don Brash in it who made that Ariwa speech who said we must all be equal, and that was his party policy. So um, Don, uh, John Key dumped National Party policy in the same way that... Because he wanted to be Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah, and it was the same way that the... Um, Rogernomics was introduced under a Labour Party, and that's exactly the opposite of all the Labour Party policy. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you for coming on the program and talking about these issues. And um, thank you for pointing out the books and for the work you've done. And let's see what happens. Crikey, let's see what happens. Please prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. All the best to you. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.